Welcome to the Church Essentials Podcast. My name is Thomas Swope. I'm going to be hosting today in place of Ben Armstrong. Now, we're going to be talking about the topic of worship today. Uh, we've already covered the essential of the text, including uh, the word and how we use it in, in our church. And we're going to take this episode, number six, and the following two episodes to talk about worship. Um, today, around the table to talk about this with us, we have Pastor Brent, Belford and Pastor James Varner, and then our new guest, uh, Ben Kilkup, our worship director. The worship director. The worship yeah. director, yes. <laughs> um, and so uh, as, we, as we get into today's discussion, today we're going to be talking about what worship, what we mean by worship. Um, and what the scriptures teach about it, and then and then in the future podcast we'll talk about a little bit more about the what, and then and then how we do it. Um, so to start us off in the conversation, um, Pastor Brent, would you would you give us kind of a, a definition, a formal definition we can start with? Sure. This is just something I came up with just the other day. Is this actually um, I proposed a definition to the the staff a while back uh, about worship, and it it is really relying heavily on D. A. Carson's book. Uh, worship uh, by the book. And in, in the book there, he lays out this long definition, but the first part is really what we want to emphasize. And we slightly modified it too. So I don't think he'd take credit for all of this, but the definition is worship is the proper response of human beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to God because he's worthy. Okay. So it's worship is the proper response of human beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to God because he's worthy. And uh, so we kind of look at that definition as having three parts to it. And what we imagine we could do in this session would be to talk about the three parts a little bit, each one of us kind of taking turns and really thinking about how that those parts, uh, this definition can be, uh, can come forth from what the scripture teaches about worship. So I want to start with the very end of the definition because he is worthy. Uh, so this morning I was looking in my devotions, I was reading Revelation 4 and 5, and uh, I love this chapter for what it proclaims about worship, um, that uh, you, you just have these great pictures of end-time worship with all of these beings around the throne of God issuing worship to him. And I was just reading through it in my English Bible this, this week, uh, or uh, this morning even, I just noticed that, I, I never noticed this before, I don't know if you guys have seen this before, but in Revelation 4, the praise is directed to the one on the throne, or the one I would think of as being God the Father, and that uh, you've got four creatures, 24 elders, they're all praising the one on the throne, and they're praising him for things like, because he's holy, uh, because he's everlasting, he is and was and will always be, and then they're praising him because he's the creator of all things. But then in Revelation 5, it transitions to uh, now they're praising the lamb. So the lamb who's slain appears and their praise is directed toward uh, the lamb. So you've got both of these groups. They fall uh, fall before the throne and worship the lamb who'd been slain. They're specifically worshiping him because he's redeemed from every people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, people who'd be saved. So so I love it, Revelation 4 and 5, because you've got these beings worshiping God the Father, and then Revelation 5, they're worshiping the Lamb because he's redeemed or made, made it possible for people to be redeemed. 
And it all ends with this crescendo. And this is why I hadn't seen before at the end of Revelation 5. I kind of want to preach from Revelation 5 now. But uh, at the end, verse 13 of, of Revelation 5, it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb, that's, the, that's our Savior, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So it's like this great crescendo at the end that both are receiving worship for what they have done. And so I, I like this passage because I think it just gives us you know, the grounds for why we would worship God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, um, just clearly articulated in this, this powerful text. So... Um, that's the last part of the phrase because he's worthy. Um, now I want to bump ahead to the front. I'm going to kick it over to our worship director. And I want to talk about the, the proper response of human beings to God. Okay, I think Revelation just showed us it's not just human beings. We're talking about human worship here today. But um, Ben Kilcup, I think you, you've had some, some thoughts about the way people should respond to God. Yeah, there's an oft-cited text in these discussions. It's John 4.24, where Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We could probably spend a whole episode talking about that verse right there. Just to, in a concise way, uh, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and she's She's got a question about worship at Jerusalem versus Samaria. And so Jesus is, is indicating to him to her that there's a, a change that comes with his coming, that worship will no longer be uh, tied to Jerusalem. But for, for our purposes here, the point that we want to kind of draw out is that genuine worship must be grounded in truth. And so if you look in, in all of, of Scripture... Uh, we learn that God is a, a God who initiates. God is a God who speaks to us. And so all of our worship to God is not something that we came up with creatively. It wasn't our idea. All of our worship is is really just a response to God's initiative. And so, so that means that not only uh, is our worship shaped by God's character, but we're also to obey God's instructions. And I think that that becomes really clear if you fast forward to the book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10. The author of Hebrews is kind of contrasting how people approached God under the old covenant versus how they approach God in the new covenant. And he, he calls the old covenant merely a shadow of what Jesus would do, which was the, the reality of Christ's sacrifice, which finally freed us from our guilty consciences. That, that's where he gets into in, in uh, chapter 10, verses 19, these familiar verses where he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, um, says, uh, kind of fast forward, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We can draw near to God in Christ uh, because of what Jesus did for us. I think one of the main points that the author of Hebrews is getting at is that you must approach God on God's terms. You can't go back and approach God according to the old covenant terms. And he says uh, later in, in chapter 12, you know, you, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, but you've come to Jesus, the mediator of uh, a new covenant. And so his point there is, if, if you're going to come to God now, you have to come through Jesus because you have to come on God's 
terms. The old covenant is no longer an option uh, because God's God's instruction is to come to him through Jesus. Yeah, that's great. And I think that when we were talking about worship before, Ben, uh, you were bringing out that one of the writers, I can't remember who it was, really emphasizes this, that it's 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 coming to God on his terms. You made that clear in Hebrews that it's through Jesus now. I mean, there's no other way to be accepted, but yeah, it's great. Uh, James, I think you had some thoughts about proper response to God. Yeah, I think I think the text I'm going to look at in a lot of ways will say some of the same things that Ben just said. Um, but the text I want to look at is in John 9, where the, bl- the blind man is healed. Um, and, and we see the proper response to God here. Um, it's interesting that the blind man, he... He was not a man who was healed because of his faith. Um, he was a man who Jesus just healed. Um, th- at the beginning of the passage, we find out that there was a discussion, well, why was he born blind? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And, and Jesus said, well, no, it, it, was, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so then Jesus goes on to display those works. He heals the man. Several people question this blind man because... You know, they're trying to figure out what happened to him. And he can't really explain it because he doesn't even know exactly who Jesus is. He can't articulate it. But as um, there was a debate among the people, was Jesus a man sent by God because he has these healing powers? Or is Jesus a sinner because he's healing on the Sabbath? They posed that question to the blind man. You know, what is your take on it? And his conclusion was that Jesus must be a prophet. Um, So... Then there was further discussion among the religious leaders, and and they began to question, well, maybe he wasn't even blind to begin with. And so they go talk to his parents, and they find out that, okay, yes, he was born blind. But um, So then they come back to talk to the man again. They want to question him again. And um, they, they the first thing they say when they come to him is they say, give glory to God, because they, they don't want him to be giving any glory to Jesus. They want him to give glory to God for being healed. And, and they have this discussion. Um, it doesn't go real well. Eventually he gets kicked out of the temple and Jesus finds this man. And, and the man still doesn't know who Jesus is. Um, but when Jesus heard that he had been cast out of the temple, um, this is in John 9, uh, verse 35, he asked him, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So he, he's identifying Jesus as Lord, not a prophet anymore. He's a, Jesus is Lord. He believes, and he worships Jesus. And if I could add one more thing from the Gospel of John, and this, this really ties in that not only is the proper response um, to someone who is believing in God that they would worship, um, but as Ben was saying, this only is through Jesus. So in John chapter 4, um, verse 22 and 23, it says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If we're going to come on God's terms, right, it has to be through the Son. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have God here sitting on the throne who's the judge of all the earth. Yeah. He gives all judgment to the Son. Yeah. Why? For the purpose that the Son will be honored, just as he is honored. Oh, no. Oh, and by the way, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. Right. Oh, that's great. I mean, these texts so far, the Hebrews text, the John text, uh, just 
really capture, I think, what we want to emphasize at Colonial, that is uh, the nature of true worship is the pr- in the proper response is coming on God's terms. It's only through his son. We must believe like the blind man you just mentioned there, must believe and worship him. Uh, there are other ways, of course, we can properly respond to God in worship. And uh, we wanted Thomas uh, here uh, to capture another one of those for us. Yeah, so mine's, my my mind goes to the, the account of Job. And uh, so many of us are familiar with the way the book of Job starts and ends. Um, and, it, and it's really because in those in that beginning and the end, there are these really poignant responses by Job. And um, I'm going to start in, the, in, the, in his first response because it's most explicit in, in his first response. So in chapter one, like you, you read the context a little bit and you see that, um, you know, Job is this righteous man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan challenges the Lord by saying, he, does he fear you for no reason? Like uh, you, you, you hedge him in, you protect him, you bless him. You should expect that he would fear you. And so, um, by the Lord's permission, he allows Satan to, to, to do his worst, except just don't touch his person, right? So the first round of, of suffering that Job experiences, you know, servant after servant comes and says, listen, this is the, the Sabaeans attacked, um, a great wind, uh, fire from heaven fell, the Chaldeans came and just Job's at a complete loss. And then that brings us up to verse 20, where he said, where it says that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And then the next verse is that I take it as the content of his worship. And he said, naked, I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So the content of, of, of this worship is the confession that everything is God's and he can do whatever he wants with it. And in that, right. he's good in doing it. So, so it's really helpful when the narrator says, so he worshiped basically saying this, and it's, and it's an acknowledgement of who God is and, and, his, and his freedom to do that. Um, but then that, that, um, this passage in the beginning of the, the account of Job kind of gives us a little bit of grounds to stand on and say that his response in the end of the book is a similar act of worship. Yeah, he acknowledges God's yeah. place there in his own place as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, in, so in, the end of, in the end of Job, um, after um, Elihu has spoken on behalf of the Lord and it kind of helped, helped Job see where, where his sight had been blind a little bit, and then, and then the Lord comes in the whirlwind and he speaks himself and he, and he spends chapters on showing how powerful he is, how um, comprehensive his control is. Um, and then you finally get to Job's um, dumbfounded response in chapter 42. And it says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Right, so this wasn't introduced introduced with the word, and so he worshipped, saying, but it's in the same it's the same um, kind of speech that that Job is is responding to God, just like he did in chapter one when he worshipped. I know that you can do all things; no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He said, um, and then therefore I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful me for for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Again, I think he's quoting, uh, quoting um, 
earlier content. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I think this is just an incredible verse because he he's admitting that he thought he knew God. And then the second line is, now I realize I was wrong. Now I see you for who you are. Therefore, and here's, here's his fitting response. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So I feel like the, uh, the beginning and the end of Job are just beautiful examples of what's an example of, of right response to God is when you get a view for who he is and then you look at yourself and you see who you really are in light of who God is and you repent and you confess and you change your mind and, and throw out small views of God and embrace large views of God. And because we're sinful human beings, right? Uh, yeah. uh, the One of the proper responses, of course, is repentance, uh, yeah. seeing ourselves for who we are too. And yeah, and that's that's and that's that's what's going on in Isaiah six yeah. with with uh, Isaiah having this beautiful view, grand view of how holy God is, and then he sees, oh, woe is me! I'm the most sinful creature. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. unclean. Yeah, yeah, so it's a similar response. Guys, these are great texts. Thank you for reminding us about them. Uh, my heart has just been stirred, again, as I think of the fact that God is worthy. There's a way for p- human beings to properly respond to him that involves the Son, involves believing uh, in Jesus, acknowledging who God is, repenting of sin. Um, there's a part in the middle of the definition by Carson that we want to really deal with next time, and that is ascribing all honor and worth to God. And uh, this is a part where our conversation, I think, next two podcasts will get really practical and that's where we're going to imagine uh, how we uh, view worship. Um, is how we imagine our our people at Colonial Baptist Church worshiping God. And so we're going to use the two categories. There are different ways you've, we've heard this talk. We, we've actually debated a lot about this so far. Uh, we're going to use the categories worship in life and worship in the gathering. Um, I've heard it called like, broad and narrow sense of worship, narrow being like the worship service, broad being life. Other ways, I mean, right. direct and indirect. That was uh, direct and indirect God, Godwardness, God. right, Ben? Yeah. So different ways to talk about, we like to talk about worship in life and in the gathering. And so we, I just would encourage you to, you know, to listen to those and Uh, That's where we're heading next. So, Thomas, I'll hand it over to you as our moderator. Yeah, there's your teaser for next episode. So, thank you all for joining. I hope this was a help to you. We've we've been enjoying discussing this and thinking about it on our own. So, if you liked it, uh, please like it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to it. And we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.